This is Making Stitches and this time we're doing something a little bit different. I'm taking you to the People's History Museum in Manchester to learn about the valuable work they do there in the conservation of heritage fabrics and in particular with protest banners, something which is still popular as a statement of solidarity or protest today. Beth Gillians is the museum's conservation officer. I think we're seeing at the moment, I would say a real resurgence in people using craft to make statements. There's so much going on in the world right now and a lot of us feel very helpless sometimes to do anything about it. But we know that as makers we can make a comment and we can do a thing which, you know, metaphorically nails our colours to the mast and says, you know, this is what I stand for. So we see a lot of that at the moment we accessioned um, this last year a, a beautiful knitted big banner which is I think it was basically knitted granny squares and um, it was um, from the Covid pandemic someone had displayed it on the side of their house I think just knitted up and we see a lot of those too and the different ways that people embrace craft to make their points, you know, it's that real grassroots stuff I think we're seeing more and more, if anything. Hello and welcome to Making Stitches podcast. I'm Lindsay and it's a real privilege to be able to share this episode with you today. A few weeks back I took a trip into central Manchester to visit the People's History Museum. It's the National Museum of Democracy and tells the story of campaigning in Britain. It's also home to the largest collection of trades union banners in the world. It was the banners which brought me along and my curiosity about how such delicate and fragile and potentially very old pieces of art can be preserved and, if necessary, repaired so they can continue to be enjoyed in the years to come. Each year, the museum replaces 26 of its display banners with others from the collection, and I heard there was going to be a tour of the current exhibition explaining the hidden meanings behind the banners, their individual stories, as well as the conservation work which is going on behind the scenes. The tour began with programme and learning officer Michael Powell. So our banner exhibition actually begins here with the Toll for the Martyrs banner. But actually, I want to talk about this banner, which isn't in the exhibition, but I think it's really useful to talk about, to contextualise our exhibition. Um, so, so every year we, we change all the banners in the show because of the, we're the size of our collection and as a way of kind of getting them out and talking about the stories connected to them. Well, this banner is on permanent display and it's, I rightly think, it's the oldest surviving trade union banner in the world. So it's the Tim Plate Workers Banner from 1821, which was made in Liverpool. And I think it's really, it's useful to think about because of the, the, the symbols and the imagery that this banner displays, um, which are kind of motifs and images that you'll see on lots of banners, like kind of from older trade union banners, through to kind of uh, more modern ones. Um, in particular, do, do people recognise this symbol here, which is, which is a bundle of sticks stuck together, which represents unity and strength. The idea that one stick alone can be broken, but a bundle of sticks together uh, can never be broken, which is a common motif on a lot of trade union banners. Um, and this character here represents uh, justice, the scales of justice. Um, 
Often in older trade union banners, you'll also see the British flag, yeah, and you'll see the all-seeing eye of God. Kind of a recognition that although the people and the, the groups of people, the individuals, the unions making the banners in the kind of in the kind of early 1800s were kind of perceived as radical at the time often these motifs were included because they were kind of still showing the solidarity with the, the state and with organized religion at that time as well so it's kind of like trying to kind of like um, marry those kind of what were perceived as radical views with kind of uh, more traditional values the tour itself covered handmade community banners as well as professionally manufactured ones. Causes included the women's suffrage movement, nuclear disarmament, trades unions, the miners' strike and immigration. It was utterly fascinating and such an interesting way of exploring British history. The tour ended by a huge glass window looking into the workshop where the conservation work takes place, which is where I was lucky enough to go, along with Conservation Officer Beth Gillians. Thank you so much for allowing me to come into the inner sanctum where all the conservation work's going on. Um, just for the people at home who obviously can't see where we are, we're in a little office next to this area where there are huge tables and these beautiful banners in a state of well decay really all being rebuilt tiny little pieces of silk and everything what goes on here so we're really lucky with this space so um the museum is famous for its um, banner collection we have the largest trade union banner collection in the world and um the conservation studio here is specifically set up for the conservation of those so we have a really large um, bright space um, and we work on our own collection and for private clients and we try and um, conserve and preserve objects for, for the future as much as possible so they can be used and shared and displayed um, in all their glory. So that kind of involves um, both research work but also practical um, treatment of objects. So it's, it's preserving those for the future is our main focus. Now, we've just been watching one of your colleagues putting minuscule pieces of silk, almost like a jigsaw puzzle, to, to rebuild the, the bottom area of a banner. Can you explain to me what, you do, what she's doing there? Yeah, so it's part of a project for the National Coal Mining Museum. Um, it's one of four banners that we're conserving for them. Um, and it's where the materials really come into how we approach treatment and how we look after things. Um, so it's been massively light damaged over time. Um, we think this has affected how the um, chain structure of the silk of it is, is holding together. So it's um, doing its best to become powder basically at this point, but it's a beautiful jacquard woven silk. Um, and a lot of the bottom of the banner was just in pieces. Um, we had a big hole in it that we didn't know we had all the pieces for, but Chloe's been able to put them all together in a really interesting puzzle. Um, and now what we're doing is she's dyed fabric to match it as best as possible, which is a really, really thin silk gauze, um, and applied some adhesive to that. Um, and then that's being um, stuck over the top of it to hold all those pieces in place. Um, and reactivated with heat. Um, so we're going to fully enclose it so it's nice and secure for display, um, but that you can still see all the original detail of the object. It's painstaking work and quite mesmerising actually to watch her put the tiny pieces on with the tweezers. How many hours of work has been done on it so far? 
Uh, so far, I think we're definitely over 600 po hours, probably approaching 700. I think it's been estimated for a thousand in total. Um, but it varies massively with the different banners and the different condition. That's certainly been one of the most challenging objects she's ever worked on, she says, and one of the most satisfying in just as much. I can imagine to see from, from start to finish, from what, what came in to you, to what will, will go out, what will be a huge sense of achievement. Yeah, one of the biggest joys of conservation is the before and after pictures, where you know you look at something in a, in a crumpled heap that hasn't had as much love, maybe, as it could do, or has just just degraded because of its use and that's really interesting in itself but then you come out of it and you see something that is really honouring the object and the people that made it and the story that it has to tell it's really beautiful and I guess the nature of, of the of the banners the fact that they're fabric and are handmade and some of them are really quite old it's quite remarkable that they they last as long as they do it really, really is so particularly things like the silk which is really, really vulnerable to light um, and lots of other things um, and the challenge of paint on them you know I'm a textile specialist and a fabric geek myself but the paint presents a really different challenge that you know the weight of paint versus a really light silk over time you get lots of fracturing as a result of that and really classic damage um, so it's this really interesting point we sit at between textiles conservation and painting conservation where you have to have kind of both hats on sometimes and and really kind of learn from both fields and tie those in in a way that you know we're not thinking of it as just a fabric object or just a painted thing that all of the aspects of it are really important. How do you come up um, I mean we've just been on the tour looking at the different banners which we'll, we'll get on to later but you were saying how it's there's a real dilemma as to how far you take the conservation because you're not trying to make things look perfect again um, yet you need to make them stable enough to, to last into the future how do you settle how do you find that balance between you know repairing and taking it a bit too far it's a really good question. I think it's really object dependent. You know, when I was training, every, the answer would always be, oh, every object's different. And I think, yeah, but I mean, it can't be. Like, surely you learn after a while that there's systems in those ways. And to some extent, you know, we take similar approaches, but every object is different and there's just no getting around it. You know, I think a lot of conservators work with a kind of risk system in their head and you're saying, well, is, is this worth the risk management how do i reduce the risk of anything as much as possible um but ultimately those are decisions you have to make in in the moment and say okay well you know what is evidence of use and what is important and what's um perhaps less so and also causing degradation so it's all that how can we extend the life as much as possible but make sure we're honoring the object as it is you know what's the authentic self well no one ha will have the same answer to that and there is no one answer to that and as people change that will change over time too indeed because i guess it the, the conservation techniques themselves will be changing and and mm. moving with the times so i guess you you've also mentioned about the fact that there was a banner that had already been conserved mm. before and techniques were used and decisions were made that you would not make now, um, I guess there's the, the fact that maybe in 10, 20 years time, people might look back on the current work and say, well, we don't do that anymore and yeah. have moved on to something else. Definitely. And I think you're always trying to 
stay ahead of that and try and make sure you know there's a big emphasis at the moment in the field on ethical decision making and you're trying to have one eye to the future all the time and make sure that you know this this meets that need but knowing that you know all of us are always looking at something through a lens of the time that we're living in and the times that we've seen so trying to stay ahead of that and work out what's the best um, ethical and sustainable approach to the decisions we make um, but also what's practical and what's feasible so it's a great field to be in I can well imagine Uh, how did you get into this line of work Uh, So I am a historical reenactor and maker, Um, so I learned about conservation really early on because my family love museums and we spent the weekend with me learning, you know, in the summer learning to spin and being a Tudor or a Viking or a Victorian. Um, So I learned about it through the making side and just wanted to be in the back rooms of museums and kind of kept going till... I got there because I found out I was lucky enough to find out that it's a job um, yeah so then I did a history degree and then went to do a master's at the University of Glasgow which teaches textile conservation but there's a few different conservation courses around the country and around the world depending on what you want to specialize in how amazing though to be able to do do a job that you love so much yeah yeah I'm very very lucky Can you tell me a little bit about the exhibition that's actually going on here at the moment? There's a a huge display of banners from from very early on right through to a banner that was made very recently about immigration. Um, And this is only a tiny fraction, I believe, of of the banners that you have here at the museum. Yeah, so we're so lucky with our collection and um, with the historical approaches of display that we've had. Um, so our predecessor Vivian was a real specialist in, in banner conservation and um, really argued well for getting as many things on display as possible so as part of that we have an annual changeover of all of the non-permanent banners so all of the banners that you've seen today that aren't in cases have all been changed over in January and will all be changed over next January um, which ab- enables us to give a really um, fresh face um, each time that we can talk about different issues, that we can represent the themes that the museum really focuses on, um, but do that as much as possible. From a conservation perspective, it means that we can really look after the objects as best as we can. You know, we need to factor in the fact that there's light damage possible, even at the low levels we use in museums, and we need to monitor that in an ongoing way. Um, We like to hang things vertically so that you can see all sides where that's possible, but you can see as much as how it was meant to be displayed so there's strains and stresses involved in that and as part of um, extending the life of those objects it's really nice to be able to change them over regularly so that not only visitors get different things to see but that the objects will all have an extended life as well. Now we we were talked about um, some of the symbolism that that, Mm. uh, you know is visible in, in various different banners at different periods throughout history can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a really interesting one and it's something that I've been picking up as I kind of go along, you know, my my specialism is in the materials, but it's really interesting to see the threads throughout, you know, that people are consciously throughout history picking up on the same images to make comments. So Michael talked on the tour about um, the bundle of sticks, meaning strength that, you know, one stick can be easily broken and and many is... is, um, 
harder to break and you see a lot of that in the early trade union banners but also in the more recent ones and and the really old oil painted styles you see a lot of biblical iconography or or a lot of hives particularly you know the manchester bee that we see a lot now um that worker bee theme is runs through so many of the the objects on the collection and you see it on the street now around around the museum um, bees on lampposts on stickers and it's it's lovely to see those themes drawn in and, and represented throughout time. Do you think there is a, a future for banners? Um, I mean, they've been with us throughout history. In this day and age, of course, we've all got smartphones and we can put our thoughts out into the, into the ether. Um, is there still a desire, do you think, for people to, to promote their causes and their political beliefs or their religion or whatever it might be through the form of fabric and banners? I'm seeing them everywhere now. Um, wherever I go, banners are everywhere since I started this job. And I love it. Um, I think we're seeing at the moment, I would say a real resurgence in that, in people using craft to make statements. There's so much going on in the world right now. And a lot of us feel very helpless sometimes to do anything about it. But we know that as makers, we can make a comment and we can do a thing which, you know, metaphorically nails our colours to the mast and says, you know, this is what I stand for. So we see a lot of that at the moment. We accessioned um, this last year a, a beautiful knitted big banner, um, which is, um, I think it was basically knitted granny squares. And um, it was um, from the COVID pandemic, someone had displayed it on the side of their house, I think, um, just knitted up. And we see a lot of those too. And the different ways that people embrace craft to make their points you know there's that real grassroots stuff I think we're seeing more and more if anything. One thing I found fascinating about the tour uh, um, around the banners was the fact that you spoke about banner manufacturers mm. to my mind I always imagined it was it was done by women in the home who would pull together mm. and do something like you, you mentioned with the suffragettes piece um, but there were actual banner manufacturers and you'd place your order and you'd say, I want this border and this image and this wording and, and somebody would go and make it up for you in a factory. That's quite quite amazing. It is, and it's something I'd not come across before till I did my conservation training and totally didn't know about these objects. But actually when you get into the detail of it, you know, it was mass production really quickly on a big scale. You know, we're talking about two, three, four metre objects, you know, that are being stretched in a studio somewhere to be painted and you have different people doing the different jobs. Um, you know, people like Tuthill were commissioning um, fabric to be woven or having fabric woven themselves um, and things that are really intentional and purposeful. So some of the designs you can see that the um, painting kind of, there's some interplay between the weave and the painting, you know, it's making that most of the design of the jacquard weave cloth and you've got kind of little bits that play with where the tendrils of flowers are and then you've got another painted section you know it's really convoluted and thought out um, and really complex. That's fascinating now talking about the um, the suffragette piece mm -hmm. you, you picked out the fact that it it's quite possibly got real gold thread within it can you tell me a little bit about um what it looks like for the benefit of the people who are listening um and and the makeup of the actual banner because it's truly striking yeah so it's a a 
beige banner, for want of a better word. Um, it's made of a cotton velvet largely, but it's got a central figure embroidered on it. Um, and she has kind of a, a scepter in one hand and a staff in the other, I think, which is kind of a figure. Um, and she's got kind of Grecian robes um, and headband and beautiful hair that's all embroidered. And um, below her, I think it says, says Suffragette Atelier. Um, and that's um, what the banner was manufactured for. They were an organisation that um, paid non-professional um, workers or women largely um, to make um, artworks, including banners during a time period leading up to the First World War. Um, she is embroidered with that metallic thread, um, which is composed of different layers. So it's uh, silk with then paper wrapped around it, but before the paper is wrapped around it, um, some clay or glue um, has been applied and then a very, very thin layer of gold. So she sparkles really beautifully in the light um, and that's all over her sandals and her kind of cope around her shoulders and some of the lettering as well. It, it's a stunning piece. How, how did the museum come by it? Do you know? I don't know the story of that one actually, no. I think there's an awful lot that comes in through different ways, so obviously people donate things to the museum, um, we look at acquiring things as well and keep our eyes out. Um, at the moment we're, we're holding off collecting anything more for just now, um, as we kind of consolidate what we have, see where we're at um, post-pandemic. but. Yeah, there's definitely things. So we have the um, First in the Fight banner, um, which is the other famous suffragette one, the big purple one. Um, so that was one that we actively sought out and acquired. But we also have people contact us all the time and say, we have this really interesting thing. What do you what do you think? You know? So. Wow. So you never know Mike, what might come your way. <laughs> no, no. It's always interesting to see what emails come in. <laughs> and how do you go about or deciding which banners are going to be going on display and, and which will stay in the mm -hmm. store for a, a little while longer? I think a lot of it comes down to um, the condition that things are in. Um, so we want to make sure that although it's only a year that things are on display, um, that we are not risking anything. Um, we have everything on open display. Um, which obviously we encourage people not to touch them, but we know that in order to give people the access to them that we like, that there are risks associated with that. So things have to go up that are stable and are not necessarily going to get worse um, over that time or that it can be, risks can be mitigated. Um, and that comes down to sometimes the practicalities of, okay, what needs to be done to it? How much time do we have that we can lot to it? And there's real high turnover with the, the banner hang and the other um, private work we do as well. So it's time budgeting sometimes. I can well imagine. And do you have a, a particular favourite? Um, I think I have two favourites. Uh, the first in the fight suffragette banner, just because of what it is. Um, but also the LGSM banner that we saw on the tour is one of my particular favourites. Um, just because of the story around it, you know, that it's people who were not welcomed by a lot of society at the time but really saw injustice and went out and, and fundraised and, and thought about it and changed people's minds and and I yeah I think it's a beautiful story um, so I like that it represents that for me. Can you tell me the story then for, for the listeners yeah. who weren't on the tour? <laughs> <laughs> so that is um, the Les 
Beyonds and Gays Support the Miners banner, um, which was made by Mark Ashton, and it was um, the film Pride um, featured the story. So it was a group of um, lesbians and gays in um, London who, in the 1980s, saw the miners' strikes and um, the hardship that the miners were having and decided to fundraise um, to support them where they could. So they had a lot of um, opponents and they fundraised a whole huge amount of money um, and in the end um, a lot of the miners supported them by marching at Pride um, with their original trade union banners they also marched in Pride and I love that and I love that that banner is a symbol of that and it was made on his living room floor. That's incredible. I'm getting tingles here in a bit. And it's quite beautiful the way that it's been displayed, that particular banner here, because it's the, it's the rear of the banner mm. that, that visitors see. And we'll see what people walking behind it in a parade mm. would have seen. And there's a picture of a policeman and Margaret Thatcher and then the verse of a song. Yeah, I we argued really hard for it and we're really, really proud that that's what people will see this time. Because um, you just think, yeah, it was a... A protest song that people know the tune to. I played it to my mum and she was like, oh that's that's such and such and I don't know the song that she was referring to but I do know the tune when it's played and the idea of hearing that as you're marching along I think is so moving and so different than, you know, the front face is fantastic, that's the famous side but we like to give people snippets in where we can to actually there's more to each object than comes across straight away. That's wonderful. Thanks very much for your time, Beth. It's been a truly fascinating morning. I've loved seeing behind the scenes as well as the beautiful work that you've got on display here. Very, very welcome. My word, what an interesting place to visit and to see the work carried out there. It's so painstaking and mesmerising to watch. I feel really incredibly fortunate to have been able to witness it myself. The Banner exhibition is on until the 8th of January next year, so there's plenty of time to get along and see it for yourself. You can find all the information about the exhibition and the work done by the museum on their website, and there's a link for this in the show notes for this episode. My thanks to Beth and all the team at the museum for speaking to me about their utterly fascinating work. And there was some exciting news last week that the museum has been shortlisted for the Art Fund Museum of the Year Award. Good luck to them. The results will be announced in July. Now, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, perhaps you'd consider giving the podcast a rating or review on your favourite podcast app. Heather Peacock Printmaker did just that on Apple Podcasts last month, saying hooray for Claire and that it was amazing to hear the episode featuring Claire Albans from Hello Hooray Blog. Thank you for the five-star review, Heather. It's much appreciated. If you'd like to support the podcast in another way, perhaps you'd like to buy me a virtual coffee or buy some podcast merchandise or one of my PDF crochet patterns from the Making Stitches shop. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back again in two weeks' time when I'll be talking crochet with Joanne Scrace from The Crochet Project. Until then, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your crafting.